Good morning. How are you today? Are you well today? Yeah, good to see you. Good to be here with you. I'm also uh, looking forward to our trip. Happy Father's Day to all the fathers uh, this morning. I'm just delighted that my dad is here uh, with me uh, and uh, just could not ask for a better father who has modeled such a... um, a wonderful life of integrity and uh, Godwardness for me in every way. So, happy Father's Day. Be sure to grab those dad's root beer floats. And will you please take your Bible? I want to get started. We have a lot of co- uh, lot to cover this morning. Uh, as Jan mentioned, I am, I've been asked to teach on the topic of integrity uh, in Zambia. And we're going to be talking, when I get there, we're going to be talking about pastoral integrity, specifically uh, but I, so, so some of what I share with you, we, I will reshape for them, and then some of it is just for you. But will you take your Bible, please, and meet me in Daniel chapter 3. Daniel chapter 3. Have you ever been, uh, have you ever been singled out because of your faith in the Lord? Ever felt a crisis of faith where the line between fitting in and standing out was clearly drawn? On one side of the line stood the vast majority of your peers, uh, your friends, your family members, your neighbors, your co-workers, your colleagues... All of, all of them stood on one side of the line, and on the other side of the line, that side was seemingly reserved only for those strange nonconformists, those, uh, those religious weirdos who are often labeled as being out of touch with the reality of everyday life. Whatever the issue may be and whenever it may arise, the risk of being singled out, especially when it comes to your faith in God, uh, that is intimidating. It's frightening. On such moments, we may find ourselves uh, unexpectedly thrust into one of those want-to-get-away moments, uh, those occasions when all eyes are suddenly and uncomfortably fixed upon you. What do you do then? How do you respond in those moments? And who is there to respond with you, to help you, to urge you on? And and who is there whom you will help and urge on toward greater godliness? That's the question that hangs over our passage today. So today is part two of our three-part series on biblical integrity And we come to one of the most uh, familiar and cherished accounts in Scripture. Daniel 3 details the account of three Jewish exiles who were living in ancient Babylon and who demonstrated extraordinary integrity under extraordinary circumstances. Now, each of the two previous chapters uh, have mentioned these three men by name, But they've mostly played supportive roles while Daniel himself has taken the lead. In this chapter, however, Daniel isn't even mentioned. Instead, 
he records the dramatic occasion by which three of his friends came to a personal crisis of faith where the pressure to cave uh, reached epic proportions. The record of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego has long lived in Christian lore, uh, told and retold for good reason. Now there is much to be learned in this passage. Obviously, we could go in so many different directions in this passage, but for today's purposes, I want to focus on another important facet of integrity that I believe often gets lost in the shuffle. And that is the issue of accountability. I think what we learn in this passage, among many other things, is that we need trusted friends who stand with us before God in life and in death. You need need trusted friends who will stand with you before God in life and in death. So let's read the the, the chapter. I'm going to read the whole of Daniel chapter 3 where it begins with these words. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon and, and then the king sent to gather the, the satraps, the prefects and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as the peoples, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image, and whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Well, there are certain Jews whom you've appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you, They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. 
Then King Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, when you hear the horn of the when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music to fall down and worship the image that I have made well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this manner. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and he ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated, and he, he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and, and to cast them into the bi- uh, burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Now, because the king's order was so urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound in the burning, fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men, unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not heard, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace, and he declared, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire and the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered and they saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed. Their cloaks were not harmed. And no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angels who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore I make a decree, any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruin, for there is no other god who was able to rescue in this way. And then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego 
in the province of Babylon. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you for our time in your word, in the scripture. And I pray that in these moments we share, God, would you speak to our hearts? Would you reach the depths of our being with the truth of your word and with the example of these three men? so that we might learn from them, so that you might increase our faith, so that we might uh, become men and women of integrity and bring glory to your name in life or death. And we ask this through the person and work of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. By the start of the 6th century BC, King Nebuchadnezzar was the unquestioned, unrivaled uh, ruler of the ancient Near East. Having toppled the Egyptian Assyrian alliance, his empire took center stage, and, and during that time, he decided to build a, a monument. To his, in his own honor and demand the allegiance of all the peoples and nations within his kingdom. Placed on the plain of Dura, this image was, was made of gold and it stood 90 feet tall by 9 feet wide or, or 60 cubits by 6 cubits. It's been estimated that an image of this size would contain about uh, just over 3,600 cubic feet of gold. Roughly 4,400,000 pounds of gold. Approximately 70,400,000 ounces of gold. Uh, with the price of gold today being at roughly uh, $1,334 per ounce, Nebuchadnezzar's image would, would hold an estimated value of over $5 billion in today's economy. Even if the image was merely gold-plated, we're still talking about hundreds of millions of dollars. Obviously, this was an over-the-top, extravagant show of power and prestige. Picture it standing tall on the open plain, glistening in the sun, seen by all for miles. Then the king summoned the various officials from all the nations in his kingdom to assemble on the plain of Dura for its dedication. These officials include satraps, or the realm protectors over large provinces. There were prefects, which probably refers to the military commanders. There were governors or the administrative leaders of their respective districts within the empire. There were counselors, those who served, served the king in an advisory role. There were treasurers. They were the financiers within the kingdom. There were justices, or literally the, the law bearers or the judges. There were the magistrates, which means the overseers or the sheriffs, as it reads in the King James. Basically, all the officials of the provinces uh, gathered for the dedication of the image, as we're told in verse 3. And once there, however, they learned that this was far more than a dedication. It was a pledge of full allegiance 
to the king. The herald proclaimed, you're commanded, O peoples, that, that when you hear the sound of the music, you are to fall down and worship the king's image. And if you don't, if you don't immediately fall down, you will immediately be cast into the fiery furnace. So when the music sounded, they were to, in an oath-like display of solidarity, they were to fall to the ground in worship. And worship they did. The music played in verse 7 says that all the people's Nations and languages within Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom promptly bowed before the image. They all fell to the ground in worship. Everyone under the king's command universally complied. Everyone except three. Though the command was clear, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego couldn't bring themselves to participate and, and with so many gathered on the open plain, their non-compliance was quickly noticed. Seeing this, certain Chaldeans approached the, the, the king with malicious accusation against these three Hebrews. There are certain Jews whom you've appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, they say in verse 12, who pay no attention to you. They don't serve your gods or worship the golden image that you've set up. This, basically, these foreigners aren't listening to you, O king, though you've given them their positions and you've exalted them within your kingdom. They are disregarding you. They do not serve your gods. They do not worship your image. But did you not command them to? Are not all your officials present? Has not the music played? Did not everyone else bow? Is not the furnace made ready for people like this who refuse to comply and, and make a public mockery of you, O King? You can almost hear this, just the sinister tones in their words. And what strikes me about these Chaldeans, church, is that they remind us that certain people are always watching, always observing, always critiquing. while always looking for a reason to pounce. Not everyone, isn't it true that not everyone cares what you do or don't do? As long as you don't bother them, they won't bother you. But we mustn't let that lull us into this false sense of security because certain people are always watching, just as certain Chaldeans were watching Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Therefore, when the storm hits, men and women of integrity will always stand out in a sea of capitulation. 
Living with integrity, hear me on this, living with integrity puts a person under the microscope. And we must each learn to become okay with that. We must accept that as part of the deal. And it's not just the big moments that matter, it's the everyday moments. It's the small things, the things we think are small. It's why when I buy groceries, for example, this is a true story, when I buy groceries, I'm very conscientious of what's in my cart. For the sake that if I meet someone and someone learns who I am and learns who I'm a, that I'm a pastor, that they don't see certain things in my cart that would leave the wrong impression. It's why when I'm perusing the magazine aisle, I'm very clear, I'm very obvious about which magazines I am looking at and which I am not. Because at any moment, someone could walk by and make an assumption. (laughs) It's why I don't have Christian symbols or bumper stickers on my car. Because... I, pr- I, <laughs> I, I should probably obey traffic laws more than I do. And I don't want to leave the wrong impression. Certain people... are always watching what we do and don't do. As in the case of these three Hebrews on the plain of Dura. Enraged, the king commanded the exiles to be brought before him. You can just picture the intensity is is ramping. And when they appear, he asks them directly, is it true? Is it true? That you don't serve my gods, you don't worship my image. From his perspective, maybe they didn't hear the music. Maybe their view of the image was obscured. Maybe they couldn't see the scores of people bowing around them. I'll give them another chance, the king thought. Surely they wouldn't dare to defy me again for what God can deliver them out of my hands. So having summoned the three, Nebuchadnezzar restated his expectation and presented a crystal clear ultimatum. You will either bow or you will die. And I just want to say, church, that the first reason why accountability is necessary to a life of integrity is because the pressure to conform is real. And it's constant. And it intensifies over time. The second and third reasons are found in their response to the king. There they stood. They'd been outed. They'd been singled out from the crowd. Their accusers were nearby watching. The king was demanding compliance. The furnace was close. They could probably see it, smell it, hear it, feel the intensity of its heat. The tension was thick. 
All eyes was, were upon them, and this was quite literally, this was do or die. How would you respond? How do you respond when your integrity is under the attack? For them, they stood together by faith in God. In other words, there was a sense of accountability to each other and ultimately to God. Together they replied, I love this, verse 16. This is the only thing we hear from them. It's a very long chapter. This is the only, these three verses, that's all we hear from them. And it's more than enough. Verse 16, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and He will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if not, be it known to you, O king, we will not serve your gods. We will not worship the golden image that you have set up. And that just makes you want to stand and cheer. They make it clear that there's no need to discuss this matter any further. Their actions will speak for themselves. After all, the king already knew them. Uh, last week we, we learned, we saw them back in chapter 1, where their true colors were shown. In chapter 2, the king promoted them over the affairs of Babylon. He already knew of their devotion to God. So there was no need for further deliberation here in chapter 3. Their position was clear. They would rather die with their integrity than live without it. One author writes, the defining moments in life will double as the scariest decisions. This was their defining moment. And I love that they shared it together. In fact, whenever these three are mentioned in Scripture, they're always mentioned together. In, uh, you never hear of one without also hearing of the other two. Ecclesiastes 4.12 says, Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves, but a cord of three strands is not quickly broken. Undeterred by the king's ultimatum, the three men stood together before God. Even their statements to the king are collective in nature. Verse 16, We have no need to answer you. Verse 17, Our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us Verse 18, but even if he chooses not to, we will not bow. See, this was far more than an individual effort. It was about we. It was about our. It was about us. They were united in the effort. Each one of them was looking out for the other two. And so I just have to ask, who are the people in your life to whom you have made yourself accountable like this? Who are those who are standing with you? They're standing for you. They're looking out for you. Who are the ones you've allowed into that more personal place so that they can learn you? They can know you. They can understand where your they can understand your weaknesses and know how to come alongside you. I 
accountability sometimes gets a bad rap. I think for some of us, when we hear the word accountability, it comes with a negative connotation. But true accountability is never forced or fabricated. And it's never about just getting together with other people and holding each other to lists of do's and don'ts. Instead, it's about putting yourself in positions where meaningful relationships can be forged. Relationships which, in which you are free to be yourself in a setting of trust and transparency for the purpose of mutual growth in the Lord and for strength and stability when trials come. You need people like that. We all do. This is the heart behind our life groups that meet each week because this kind of accountability is taking place in those groups. It's taking place in the women's Bible study on Wednesday mornings. It's taking place in the mother's prayer group on Thursdays. As Christians, we aren't to live in isolation. God intends that our lives intersect with one another. So the second reason why accountability is necessary to a life of integrity is because we stand the strongest when we stand together before God. And the words before God bring us to the third reason for accountability, that ultimately we are accountable to God. As it says in Romans 14, if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. You know how this story unfolds? We're told that Nebuchadnezzar's expression changed against the three exiles. Filled with fury, he heated the furnace seven times hotter than usual, so hot that even those who bound and and threw them into the fire were consumed by the flames. But amazingly, these three Hebrews were not. Astounded. Dumbfounded. The king rose to see not three men bound and engulfed, as he expected, but four men unbound and walking about unharmed. And the fourth, we're told, was like a son of the gods. Some think this was an angel from God, as Nebuchadnezzar himself believed. Others think it's the Son of God himself, the pre-incarnate Jesus, which I'm inclined to believe. Whoever it was, the point is that God met them in their affliction and protected them through it. And in his amazement, the king then called the three Hebrews out from the furnace to to see that not, not even a hair of their heads was singed. Their clothes were unharmed. No smell of fire had come upon them. In what must have been a moment of utter wonderment, the king acknowledged the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who trusted him, verse 28, and who yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any God except their own. And it's this statement from the mouth of a pagan king that demonstrates the sense of accountability these men had before God that they yielded up their bodies 
to him. In his book on the subject, Jonathan Lamb suggests that integrity means living with God watching. And with a sense of gratitude for what God has done. What would change this week if you just had that reality impressed upon you that I'm living this day before the eyes of God? Lamb says, I want to live this way because it's an expression of my accountability to the one who loves me and has called me to serve him. Joshua declared, choose this day whom you will serve. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Others have said that this is, this is living before the audience of one. When it's all said and done, when our lives have come to an end, when we appear before God, what will matter then? For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what has been done in the body, whether good or evil, and everything will be out in the open. And that judgment for Christians is not intended to cloud our hope or dampen our joy at the prospect of being with Christ. Rather, it's to serve as a stimulus to faithful service, a reminder of our obligations to live for Christ, to to live lives under His control and direction. How do I use my time? How do I use my gifts? How do I use my resources and the many God-given opportunities? All these things matter. In light of the future, will, will we look back on our lives and see that we have built only on things that are temporary? Or will we have built something that will last, something for eternity, so it's a stimulus to faithful service, a call to be wholehearted and living for the values of God's kingdom, not building for personal and therefore temporary gain. These three exiles yielded up their bodies and, and it reminds me of Paul's exhortation in Romans chapter 12 where he writes, I appeal to you, I'm appealing to you church by the mercies of God to present your bodies as living sacrifices. Holy and pleasing to God which is your spiritual worship. So impressed was the king, even he blessed the Lord and issued another decree that no one was to speak against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So this chapter that began with a decree to worship the king's image ends in worship of God Most High. Before we close, I want to press in. I want to expand upon this thought just a little bit more of being accountable to God. 
especially in the furnace of affliction. Because yielding your life as a sacrifice of praise does not guarantee an easy life. At times, God rescues in dramatic fashion as He does here, but on other occasions in love, He allows His people to endure affliction rather than escape it. But we have this incredible account of God's deliverance. Remember, He doesn't always spare us from fiery trial, but He meets us in it, and in that there is hope. There is grace to be found in the furnace. You and I may never face the threat of death like they did, but we do face the pressure to conform all the time, don't we? We've all had our moments in the furnace in one way or another, and either even today, even today, even as we sit here today, I, I, I believe that either we're about to enter the furnace or we're already in it or you're just coming out of it. The furnace is where we learn to lean on God in ways that are otherwise untested. Isn't that when God does, when God often does His, His, His best work in us? It's in those molten moments. Look around and ask any mature believer when they grew the most uh, in Christ-like character and almost without exception, they'll tell you that it was during seasons of loss It was during seasons of uncertainty. It was during seasons of hardship. It was when the heat was on and when the furnace grew seven times hotter, that's when integrity was forged. That's when God refined their faith as as only He can, as only the furnace can. Job once said, God knows the way that I take. We know Job. We know his sufferings. We know his hardship. And he once said, God knows my way, and when he has tried me, I will come out like pure gold. I did some research on what's involved in refining gold, and two things struck me. First, the intensity of the heat. The gold has to be heated to nearly 800 degrees Fahrenheit. or roughly the, uh, the temperature of a flame that's turned blue. And then secondly, you must maintain this high temperature over an extended period of time. If the gold cools too quickly, the impurities will not be sufficiently removed. If it cools too quickly, the ability to mold and form the gold will be lost. To achieve the desired end, the gold must endure high temperatures over an extended period. Only then is it removed from the flame of greater value than before. Isaiah says, God says to His people in Isaiah 48, Behold, I've refined you not as silver, I've tried you in the furnace of affliction. Spurgeon has said it's no mean thing to be chosen of God. God's choice makes chosen men choice men. 
And we are chosen not in the palace, but in the furnace. In the furnace, beauty is marred, fashion is destroyed, strength is melted, glory is consumed. Yet here, eternal love reveals its secrets and declares its choice. Therefore, if today, if today the furnace be heated seven times hotter, we will not dread it. For the glorious Son of God will walk with us amid the glowing coals. And of course, Jesus, not only does He meet us in the furnace, He went through it Himself in the garden, for instance, in the garden of Gethsemane, desperate and anguished. He offered Himself. He yielded up His body to His heavenly Father, praying that God's will would be done. As He walked through the betrayal of one of His closest followers, the arrest of those who plotted against Him, the desertion of, the desertion of His own disciples, the trials before both the Jewish and Roman courts, the disparagement and scourging from those He came to save, the scourging which tore His flesh, and, and, and in the crucifixion itself, He did all of this as one who had yielded His body to God. So in this way, even Jesus was accountable. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. Yet without sin, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace in the time of need. A life of integrity needs trusted friends who stand with you before God in life and in death. Accountability is necessary because the pressure to conform is real. Because we stand the strongest when we stand together. Because we will one day answer to God. Because we are grateful for who He is and what He's done in Christ. And because yielding your life to Him, even in the furnace of affliction, is the pathway to life itself. Amen. Amen. God, thank you for our time. I want to pray for those in our midst, even right now, who are in the furnace of affliction. And we recognize and acknowledge that you are there with them. You meet them in their point of need. And the dross of their lives that you are consuming is solely an act of grace and love. They would come out of that place pure, more refined than they went in. God, I would pray for all of us that we would not see ourselves in isolation, that we wouldn't live in isolation, independent, unconnected, disconnected, from those around us. But God, help us 
to view accountability as a positive thing, even as a gift from you. Help us to learn from the example of these three Hebrews. Help us to, to, uh, to stand strong, to seek accountability when the pressure to conform is, is ratcheted. Uh, give us grace, Lord, to, to, to stand together. Remind us that we are living before, before an audience of one that ultimately, at the end of the day, it's only about what you think. And help us to take courage and confidence and grace from the Lord Jesus Christ who went before us and paved the way. We give you all the praise, God. Do this in our lives for your glory and for the good of your people. Amen.